turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll resume our study in Matthew's Gospel this morning and in Matthew chapter 5 where we left off back in, I believe it was the last Sunday in November when we were last in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. If you're new with us, you I want to know, we're just kind of walking through the book of Matthew verse by verse and have been in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which begins at the beginning of chapter 5. We began looking at that and looking at Jesus' call to his people, describing what it looks like to live as a disciple of Christ, what it looks like to live as one of his followers. This morning, we turn to a passage that is a difficult passage, and we will look at a a parallel passage as well. You know, over the years I've seen marriage be the source of great joy, the source of great blessing and great celebration. I've also unfortunately seen it be the source of great pain and sorrow and, and anger, bitterness and resentment. As we, as we read and discuss this passage today on divorce, I, I know and I, and I want you to to, to know that I understand that there will be those sitting here today who listen with heavy hearts, who listen and the pain of divorce is very real. It is not a subject that we just talk about as though it were at arm's length or something that is not real and near to us. I know some in here have walked the road of broken marriages, whether as a spouse or as a child who watched their parents or perhaps grandparents divorce. So it's not an easy passage. It's a quite painful passage in many ways, but nevertheless, it is an important passage. It is a passage from God's holy word that we were reminded this week, right, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we turn to his word this morning. And I remind you as we do, that we serve a God whose grace is greater than our sin. We serve the one who is worthy. We are not worthy. We fail in so many ways. We stumble and fall into sin. As a matter of fact, we run headlong into sin all too often. But our God is gracious. Our God is a healer. A redeemer, he has a wonderful plan for the lives of his people, and he indeed can bring beauty from our brokenness and our messes that we make. And so we rest in him today. And as we get going, I will say that, and just kind of preface this by saying this issue is incredibly complex. We think about divorce, there is rarely two situations that are identical. And, and I just want you to understand that that there is no way <laughs> that we will be able to address every angle, every facet, every side of this issue in a, one sermon. But we're going to do our best to look at this text today from Matthew chapter 5 and be faithful to what Jesus teaches us here in Matthew 5 verse 31 to 32. And before we do, let's pray together. Oh Father, we submit ourselves to you today as your people who have gathered God to worship and exalt you. God, your grace is absolutely incredible. God, it is marvelous. And God, we stand amazed at what you've done in our lives. God, we give you glory. God, we give you glory the ancient of days. We lift our voices to you as we've already done. We lift our hearts to you. And God, now as we approach your word, we lift our minds, our hearts, our sorrows, our weakness to you. And I ask that you grant us wisdom to understand, humility to sit under your word, and grace receive it. God, please guide us in this time. We ask in the name of Christ for his glory. Amen. 
Well, let's read Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We be reminded that if you look back just a few verses, verses 27 to 30 deals with lust, lust of the heart. And I talked to you about when we went through verse 27 to 30 that these two passages are tied together. We we look at verses 27 to 30 and understand that, that there Jesus dealt with man's cheap view of purity in marriage. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus is going to deal with a cheap view, a sinfully cheap view of marital commitment. And I want you to know that this passage in verse 31 to 32 is really finds a parallel in chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. So I want to ask you to flip there, keep your thumb in, in Matthew 5 and just flip over to Matthew 19. The passages really complement each other and, and as verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5 is somewhat of a, a condensed version of, of a more lengthy discussion that Jesus has on marriage and divorce in chapter 19. And so we're going to take these two passages and look at them together this morning to see what God's Word has to say to us. So if you're in Matthew 19, beginning, we'll begin in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. As a way of reminder, I want to just remind you of the five kind of foundational statements that I gave you before Matthew 5, 27 to 30 on marriage. I think we need to have them as our foundation and framework. Perhaps you weren't here for that sermon. If you were here, hopefully this will serve as a good reminder. But briefly, these five things need to be kept in mind when we think about marriage. Number one, God created marriage and it is good. God created marriage and it is good. Number two, marriage is not mandated for all people. Someone who is not married is not walking in disobedience. They are not walking in uh, some type of lesser state. They are not a disappointment. It is not mandated for all people. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 where, where Paul has perhaps even a high view of singleness and the gift of singleness for how you live. Number three, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. We see that in Genesis, foundational that we need to keep in mind. Number four, the marriage relationship is intended to be fruitful. The command was to be fruitful and multiply. We see that in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, And then later after the flood, the command is given again to Noah and his children to be fruitful and multiply. And then finally, number five, 
the marriage commitment is to be an enduring covenant commitment between a husband and wife who hold fast to one another, who cling to one another, which will come out today in today's sermon. You know, in, in Genesis, that word in the Hebrew is the word debak, and it, it, it's, it's kind of like super glue. I explain it to couples in premarital counseling. It's this kind of super glue that you stick to one another, that you cling to, you cleave to. Cleave to. Is, I, it's funny how many young couples have no idea when you say leave and cleave. They say, what? They've never heard that. But many of you in here who are older, you've heard that terminology. You're familiar with leave and cleave. It's cleaving unto. It's coming together. It's clinging to one another, holding fast to one another. That's what's to be in a marriage relationship. Another preliminary comment we need to make before we walk through the text is when we think about divorce and we look at this text, we need to understand that divorce is always, is always the result of sin at some level. It's always the result of sin at some level. Now, saying that, we also have to understand that it's not, that, that not all people involved in a divorce are guilty of sin, okay? That's, there's an important two statements there, that divorce is always the result of, of sin at some level, in some place. Sin has come in and, and it has caused a divorce, but that does not mean that there is always guilt of sin in that divorce for both parties. One party might be innocent. It is possible for a party in a divorce to be innocent. Perhaps one spouse was unfaithful, the other was faithful. Or perhaps one abandoned the other that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 7. We won't have time this morning to get into 1 Corinthians 7, but that's another important passage when we think about marriage and divorce and remarriage and what that looks like is in 1 Corinthians 7. But there are indeed times as well where in a divorce both parties are guilty of sin. Like I said earlier, no two marriages, divorces are the same. And so it's a very difficult subject. Just you can't lump them all in together. So let's look at this morning the problem that Jesus addresses. And let's look at, it, at Jesus' teaching. And then after we do that, what I want to do is I want to just answer the question, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? When we get, come away and we step back from the text and we see the truth, we see what Jesus is talking about, where does that leave us at the end of the day? So the first thing I want you to see is the problem that Jesus is confronting here in Matthew chapter 5 and in chapter 19. The problem he's confronting is a cheap view of the marriage covenant. He is confronting this cheap view of a marriage covenant. In, in chapter 5 verse 31 and then later in chapter 19 verse 3, and what you're probably going to want to do this morning is have your Bible bookmark between chapter 5 and chapter 19 is we're going to flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the two this morning. But both 531 and 19.3 reference a passage out of Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that to you. Uh, this is a, a place where Moses, through Moses, God gave instructions concerning divorce. This is what the word of the Lord says in, in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the letter or the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So these four verses are the verses that this is referencing. It's a, a time in which, in which Moses is, is led to deal with this idea or this issue, this, this sin of divorce in which a marriage flounders, a marriage falters, a marriage is broken. And a couple of points we need to point out there, if you look in verse 1 or you hear verse 1, he says, um, if a man finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That, that word indecency, it, the, the meaning is, is really uncertain. It is, it's some type of physical immorality that could include adultery, but, but does not, or it, or it is not limited to it. It certainly would include it, but again, it's not limited to it. So it's some type of, of indecency, some type of physical immorality, some type of, of nakedness that should not be so in the context of marriage. 
And I would point out also in Deuteronomy 24 here that divorce is, is neither commanded here nor is it condoned, but it is regulated by the Lord. And we'll see that in a moment in how Jesus addresses this issue again in Matthew chapter 19. And notice what Jesus says. What does he say in verse 31? How does he begin? It was also said, right? It was also said. So what he's getting into here is an interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. You, you might also take, and just back up just a second, this needs to be said. When we look at Deuteronomy 24, we need to realize that the intent of that is to protect the wife, is to protect the lady. And I think sometimes you can read things and you can read and go, oh, well, well women were just cast aside and thought little of in, in Scripture. No, they, they weren't. The, the, the provision there is that God looks and he sees the hardness of heart, which we'll look at in Matthew 19, the hardness of man's heart and sin. He makes provisions for the lady that she is not just cast aside and no one is able to, to then care for her and her be remarried. There's provisions that are being made here in God's word for the care, it's mercy and goodness of God to ladies here. But we get to Matthew 5.31, he says, it was said as opposed to it was written. The, the, the people are not looking at and going here quote let's quote Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4 Jesus said it was said now what is the question do you remember the the question in Matthew 19 that's try they're, they're they try to trick Jesus with do you remember what that was in Matthew 19 they come and they say is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause now why would they say this why would that be the question you remember Jesus saying it was said. Here they're saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce a, a wife for any cause? What, what's going on here is the rabbis, the Pharisees, are trying to trap Jesus in a debate that's going on in that day. And the debate was between these two rabbinical schools in the intertestamental period. So the time between the, the prophecy of Malachi and as we come into the coming of Christ and Matthew, Luke, and John... When he comes, in that period, in between, there were two rabbinical schools who debated this issue of the meaning and the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. One was called the, the school of Hiel, and it was a more liberal school. The other was the school of Shammai, which was more of a conservative school. It's the same thing we have today. You have your conservative groups and your liberal groups, and you have the same thing in, in these two rabbinic schools. The school of Hiel permitted a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any reason. Josephus, you've probably heard of the Jewish historian Josephus, he made reference to this and he himself was divorced and he made reference for that, that it was such a trivial idea that a man could divorce his wife for any reason and just set her aside and give her the certificate of divorce and be done that if, if he wanted to say, you know what, you've burnt my meal, then he could divorce his wife. That is literally what Josephus referenced. You could just not be a good cook and so he says, I'm going to divorce you. Now, this is a very trivial view. The other school, on the other hand, the school of Shammai, they limited to di divorce to adultery. So they interpreted indecency to be just adultery, just that act of adultery, that act of unfaithfulness. So you have on one hand the liberal school, and you have on the other hand the conservative school of thought and the ideas of how we interpret Deuteronomy 24. Now, I'll just give you one guess, one, one shot. Here's your quiz for the day. Which school do you think was probably more unpopular in Jesus' day? I guess you know, right, by your chuckle. Yeah, the liberals. It's more popular. Wow, I can just do whatever I want to, right? Hey, I'm just going to give you a certificate of divorce and go your own way, and I'll find me a new wife who can cook better, right? And so it's just like our day. And liberal interpretations are just free. Yeah, oh, no big deal. No account. And in Jesus' day, it was the same. The liberal interpretation, the conservative interpretation. And so Jesus says here, it was also said, right? It's also said. He's referencing what's going on. In Matthew 5, he's referencing. So when he says this, the context, the people in his hearing know, okay, he's referring to what's going on, these two schools of thought. And that's what the Pharisees are doing in Matthew 19. They're trying to trap him into that. Go, hey, 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 is it lawful that a man divorce his wife for any reason? Like, where do you side, Jesus? Are you with this rabbinic school, the liberals? Or are you with this rabbinic school, the conservatives? Where are you at on this? And so they're trying to trap him in that. 
right? And so when he says it's also said, he's, he's referencing the Hillel interpretation. If you divorce her, just give her a certificate and move on. Get on with your life, right? It's, it's the same thing modern day, our kind of divorce on demand idea, right? That if I'm not happy, things aren't the way I thought they were going to be, I'm just going to divorce and move on. It's a cheap view of marital commitment. But what I would put before you today and what I believe is the primary thrust of this text today that we need to hear is that the cheap view of marital commitment is not God's view of marital commitment. We need to hear that. This cheap view of marital commitment is not God's view of marital commitment. Look back at 19, chapter four, or 19 verse 4. How does Jesus respond? When they say, is it, is it lawful for, for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? Does he say, no, 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 no. You guys are with the wrong school. You need to be with this rabbinic school. What does he say? This is, a, this is really important for us just in general. Do you agree with this group of liberals or this group of conservatives today? Who do you agree with? Who do you side with? Do you side with the Democrats or the Republicans? Do you side with the, the liberal theologians or the conservative theologians? Which ones do you side with? I think we can learn a lesson here just in general. What does Jesus say? He says, it's written. Verse 4, have you not read? Have you not read? What does he bring them to? He brings them to the word of God. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus takes them back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus takes them back to the moment that God ordained and instituted marriage. That's when, where he takes them at, that it is written there. It's not just what this school says or what that school says. It doesn't matter. You can make all of your arguments about this one or that one being right. Jesus says, listen, the deal is, what does God's word say? What does God's truth say? Let's back up. Let's go all the way back before sin even enters the picture. Let's see what God's original intent is here. God's word says that man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 6, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's a high view of marriage commitment. We can't fail to remember. We can't just walk around and forget God's good design. God's good design for marriage is important. We have to constantly live and walk with that in mind. Why, why was divorce permitted then, they ask in verse 8. What does Jesus answer to that? 19 verse 8. They say, well, well if that's the case, then, then why did Moses give a divorce certificate? Why was that provision put in place? What does he say? Because of your hardness of heart. Because of your, your sinful heart. Man's sinfulness led to the problem of divorce. But God in his mercy and kindness made provision to ensure for the protection and the provision of wives so they were not permanently cast aside. It was man's hardness of heart that led to the situation in which God gives Moses a word to regulate divorce. God shows his kindness, his goodness in those instances. I want to ask you to flip to another passage that's important. We think about God's view of marital commitment. It's Malachi chapter 2. Malachi, just flip one book back from Matthew. Malachi is the very last, last book in the Old Testament. So you just a few pages back. Malachi chapter 2. In, in Malachi, God is pronouncing judgment and punishment on his people. When he does so, I, I want you to see what he says. When we think about God's view of marriage commitment. Look at verse 13. Malachi 2, starting in verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, don't, don't read ahead here. You say, why does he not? So... You see the picture here? The, the people are coming in to worship. And they're weeping. They're passionate. They're sincere in worship. But God's not hearing it. God's not having it. He's not listening to them. Why? They're asking, why not, God? Why, what's going on? Why are you not receiving our worship, Lord? 
Listen to what the answer is. Verse 14. You say, why does he not? The answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, verse 16, you'll you'll come across some translations, the, the, um, the New American Standard and the New King James Version. Both of those, for instance, when, when they translate verse 16, it says, for the Lord hates divorce. He hates divorce. The, 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 the verse there is just a very complex Hebrew, Hebrew evidently, and it's hard to translate. So translators have to, to make a decision on how to best convey it into English, and either translation is fine. Either way, it gets across the point that God is not a fan of divorce. He, he hates it. But look at, look at how he describes marriage. Maybe we can learn something just from the way that God speaks of marriage in this passage. What does he say? He, he says, the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. God, God was there. Have you been to weddings? You've been to marriage ceremonies? And we talk about those gathered who are witnesses. Why is it important that the people of God gather together? Why do we talk about it being a, a time when I, when I marry couples, I talk to them about it being a time of worship? Because the Lord is there. The Lord is in our midst. The Lord is a witness between you and your spouse. Now, listen, now, how else he describes? He says that she is your companion, your wife by covenant. Your wife by covenant. This is a covenant commitment. You've made a covenant with your wife. Why would you just flippantly dissolve it? And, and then he says in verse 15, did he not make them one? This is a phenomenal statement. We don't have time to unpack this or study it today. But he just says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Wow. How important is that marriage bond? How important is that marriage covenant that God would bring it together with a portion of the spirit in their union the wife of your youth guard yourselves what is God seeking through that godly offspring God has a a high view of marriage God values covenant longevity in marriage but the problem is the Israelites were being faithless they were being unfaithful they were divorcing their wives evidently they we look at the book of Malachi evidently they were divorcing their wives so they could go and marry foreign wives they said well I'm I'm done here I'm going there there's a frivolous idea of a cheap view of marriage a cheap view of the covenant commitment and God's response was what that he no longer regarded the offering or accepted it from the favor of their hands the people wept they cried at the altar but God disregarded their worship he ignored it he turned his back on it because they were faithless they had a cheap view of of marriage and so God's command is what God's command is you need to regain a high view of the marriage commitment you need to regain a high view of the sanctity of marriage the preciousness of that covenant his command is in verse 15 let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth he calls them to faithfulness he calls them to covenant integrity is what he calls them to so the problem was a a cheap view of covenant faithfulness, a cheap view of marriage. So Jesus' teaching in contrast in verse 32, chapter 5, verse 32 of Matthew, his teaching is what? That we should value the marriage covenant. We should value the marriage covenant. Jesus does not go along with the popular rabbinic stance of his day. He does not bow to the majority. He does not follow what is popular. He doesn't just bow down to what, what people want to hear and say the things that are going to make them happy. When we look at it, Jesus doesn't say, hey, yeah, yeah, go ahead, divorce for any reason. And Jesus doesn't even say, hey, you know what, uh, just, let's just confine it to adultery. No, what Jesus says, he says, I want you to regain God's original intent. I want you to see the value of covenant faithfulness and longevity. I want you to have a high view of the marriage relationship and the marriage commitment. That's where I want to take you back to is God's original design. There's a lot of brokenness and God's made provisions and God's a God of mercy and grace, but we need to get back to God's original design for marriage. 
And I believe in this passage, in verse 32, and then our parallel passage in 19, I think there's four things that God calls, or Jesus calls us to understand about marriage. There's four things that we should understand about marriage in this passage. Here's the first thing. Is that Jesus calls us to see the seriousness of the marriage covenant by attaching cheap divorce to the seventh commandment. So if you want to highlight one word in that to remember it, he calls us to to see the seriousness of the marriage covenant. How does he do that? He attaches the seventh commandment to cheap divorce. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20 verse 14, that's the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. And what Jesus does here in verse 32 is he says, listen, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. If you just frivolously approach and go, you know what, my wife's a terrible cook. I'm going to divorce her and find somebody, man, that can cook a great casserole. I'm going to find someone that really keeps the house clean. I'm going to find someone that really just supports everything I want to do and makes life great and does what I want to do. A brother, that's not preference. That's not okay. That's not, hey, no big deal. Go on with it. Just give her a certificate. No, that's adultery. And Jesus connects that there and and reminds us the seriousness of the marriage commitment. It's not, hey, just give us a certificate out, no harm, no foul, let's move on. That's not what he says here. The covenant bond of marriage is not removed simply because marriage is hard. It's not. I, I don't think there's any couple in this room who would say, you know what, marriage is easy. If you're a a single, if you're a teenager, a child, and you have this view that, hey, marriage is easy, wake up. It's not. Marriage is hard. I love my wife, and my wife loves me. But marriage is difficult because I am a sinner, and she is too. It's hard. That doesn't dissolve the commitment. So he calls us to the seriousness of the marriage covenant. Here's the second thing. Jesus calls us to an enduring covenant commitment in marriage. He calls us to an enduring covenant commitment. So there's your second word. First one was seriousness. Second one was enduring. Jesus calls us to an enduring covenant commitment in marriage. We must not be numbered with those who just weakly and easily just throw in the towel. When When the feelings wear off, when the times are tough, or we just throw in the towel because he doesn't change. How married are you thinking you would change, buddy? And he doesn't. Or we throw in the towel because she does change. Well, you weren't ever supposed to change. And she does. Well, I'm done. No, that's not who we are. We're to be those who value an enduring covenant commitment to one another. That's what he says in in chapter 19, verse 6. What does he say? But therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Let not man separate. Let that be an enduring covenant commitment. We're going to hit rough spots. We're going to hit difficulty. We're going to hit trials. Things change. But we are to be those who endure in our covenant commitment to one another. The third thing that Jesus calls us to understand, perhaps this is the thing you've been waiting for all morning when you saw this text. He calls us to understand the importance of faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage. The first one, first big word was seriousness. Second one, enduring. The third one, faithfulness. Now, we look at this, there, there's one exception that Jesus gives. He gives it in 532 and 19.9. He, he makes this statement in Matthew. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is known as the exception clause. You can just Google that. You can look at it. You can go and do all sorts of research. There are books and books, journals, articles, written on this issue there is a lot of debate on this issue how do we interpret this where do we fall what exactly does he mean here is a difficult statement that Jesus makes here he makes it both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and part of the the question is why doesn't he make it in Mark and Luke in Mark and Luke it's just whoever divorces wife is guilty of adultery here he says there's an exception with the exception of sexual immorality and the ground of sexual immorality. What does he mean here? What does this exception mean? Well, here's how I would handle this with you. First, you need to understand this statement made by Jesus contextually is in teaching and responding to the issue of marriage and divorce. 
I, I don't see how we can get around that. I think contextually it's very obvious that he's dealing with a marriage relationship. Now the reason this is important is because I don't think he's speaking about betrothal. I, I think there's a difference here. I think when we come to uh, Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and then we look at Matthew 19, it is very obvious that Jesus is dealing with marriage in these passages. We look at, if you think about Matthew 1.18, we would read there, you don't have to turn there, but you read there that, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. There's a specific word for that. She was betrothed to Joseph. In, in Matthew 19.5-6, Jesus refers to what? He refers to the act of consummating a marriage, the physical union of a husband and wife that has occurred, right? And so we would understand, and I, I believe it's best to understand that this is in the context of marriage. The reason that's important is some would interpret this and say, well, the word that he uses here for sexual immorality is porneia, and that word is in reference, and he's using it here of the betrothal stage. It's if something happens when you're engaged before the actual marriage, then divorce is allowed. But anything after that, doesn't matter what it is, it is never allowed. I don't see that in this passage. I think the con context demands that we understand that he's talking in the context of marriage is what I would interpret it as. Now that word there, porneia, used for sexual immorality, that's the, the, the word that's translated there. That word probably sounds familiar to some of you adults in here and you know, and we don't need to talk about that, what derives from that word. But in the New Testament, it, it refers to a wide range of immoral actions, a wide range of unfaithful actions of things that are done that are, should be confined to the marriage relationship but if they are done outside of that relationship that word is used it's not confined in the new testament to physical adultery but it certainly includes it same as you would look at the word indecency in deuteronomy 24 1 it would include it but it's not constrained to it so i think contextually you look at the act of sexual unfaithfulness in marriage it's an act of unfaithfulness. So if a spouse breaks that most sacred union that is to be held only by a husband and wife, then Jesus, according to, to 532, 19.9, he says that except on those grounds, he gives an exception there. Now, the other thing I would point out here, and this is important, that when Jesus says this, he does not require divorce in that instance. He permits it. There's a big difference there. He does not require it. He permits it. So that means if there is unfaithfulness that has occurred in your marriage or the marriage of a family member or someone you know, it's not, okay, you have to get a divorce. I have friends who have walked that road and who have walked that road together and their marriage has been healed, reconciled, redeemed, and is a beautiful display of God's grace and mercy and power. I have friends who have not been able to walk that road for various reasons. And God's mercy and grace is displayed in their lives in different ways. It is not required, but it is permitted. I would remind you of what Malachi 2.15 says. Jesus calls us the same thing. Malachi 2.15 says, Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Again, the focus of these passages is a high view of marital faithfulness. The fourth thing that Jesus calls us to see here is the sinful, he calls us to see the sinful consequences of immoral, cheap divorce. The sinful consequences. There's your big word, you want to highlight consequences. It's, it's not only sinful in itself. When we think about this immoral, just cheap divorce that we just flippantly do, it's not only sinful in itself, but it also leads to additional sin in your life and in the lives of others. If, if you see and you look there at, at verse 32 of chapter 5, if you just divorce for any reason, then you yourself have sinned. You've committed adultery. Your spouse commits adultery when he or she remarries. And whoever marries your former spouse also commits adultery. The, the marriage bond, why is this so? It's because the marriage bond is not that easily broken. It's not just something that we flippantly break and we just cast aside. It's something that we must value and hold on to as best we can. So with those things said, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? The divorce is hard, it's painful, this passage is real and hard. 
Where does that leave us? I'm going to give you just a few points this morning I think we can take away. The first thing is this, is that we must value, honor, and fight for healthy, God-honoring marriages, whether they are ours or the people's around us. We need to fight for God-honoring marriages in our midst. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, what does he say? Let, the mar- let marriage be held in honor by all, among all. You know, that tells me, it tells me that it doesn't matter in here if you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're a single adult, if you're a married adult with kids at home, if you're a senior adult couple, or if you're a widowed, widowed individual. It doesn't matter what your situation in life is today. What it means is that no matter what your situation in life is, that we need to honor, fight for, value, and protect the marriages in our midst that I needed to be doing the things in my life that would help your marriages. You should be doing things that would help my marriage. That if there's anything in here or anyone that I, anything that I see that might be a chink in the armor of your marriage, something that would hurt your marriage, then I should love you enough to come and say, I'm concerned about this or I should intervene or do something to prevent that from destroying your marriage. We need to work together. We need to come alongside each other and fight for the health of our marriages. The second thing that we need to know is that today is the best time. Today is the best time to invest in the health of your marriage. Those of you who are in here and you're married, today is absolutely the best time to invest in the health of your marriage. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what the past has looked like. Today is the best time to set a foot forward and to start investing in the health, the longevity, the godliness of your marriage. If you need help doing that, come talk to one of the pastors and let us come alongside you and help you and walk that road with you. Third, those of you who are unmarried, if you do walk into marriage, if that is something that God has in your future, then resolve to do so with a covenant commitment to your spouse. Resolve to do so with a covenant commitment. I was overjoyed this week having conversations with a couple of our young people about just thinking through the seriousness of relationships and and marriage and, and looking at what does that look like down the road. It tells me that they're thinking about faithfulness they're thinking about an enduring covenant some longevity to that relationship and I want you to be thinking about that young people teenagers as you look toward and you look toward marriage and look toward the future adults as you're single you look towards the the possibility of marriage then I want you to do so with covenant commitment in mind with faithfulness and longevity remember Genesis 2 24 remember Matthew 19 4 to 5 Remember the passage we had looked at this morning, but jot it down and read it, Ephesians 5, to 33. The beauty of marriage, the importance of marriage, the longevity of marriage. The fourth thing I want you to hear is this. This is kind of multiple layers here. If you've gone through a divorce, if you're sitting in here this morning, you've walked that road, you've gone through a divorce, and this is a painful morning for you to sit through, a painful text, a difficult text, First, if if you went through a divorce and it was not your fault, if you walked through a divorce and you're innocent in the matter, then I would just say to you to trust God to heal. Trust God and his mercy and his goodness. He is the God of all comfort. Look to him. Draw near to him. Rest in him. Allow him to be your refuge and your stronghold. Know that he loves you. And his people love you. Know that. Don't don't miss that. God is the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in our afflictions. And he has saved you into a people. Who want to love you through the most difficult and pain filled days. Days that you never wanted to happen, that you didn't choose to happen. He will never leave you or forsake you. Rest in Christ. 
The second, if you've gone through a divorce and it was your fault, it was your fault because you were unfaithful or you just frivolously cast it aside for a reason that you would be embarrassed to tell people about. God didn't value covenant commitment. Or perhaps it was even before you were a believer. Perhaps you didn't know and you, you had no idea and you look back and you go, God, why? Why did I have such a cheap view of marriage? God, I wish I'd have known. Or if you sit and you're just convicted this morning, then I would beg of you to repent and confess your sins to God. Repent and come near to God. Draw near to Him. Confess. Turn from that sin. Ask His forgiveness. Know His mercy and grace. In both cases, you have to know God's mercy, His forgiveness, His reconciliation, His healing is real. 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to forgive us. That's real. That's not just a Bible verse you memorize, it's real. Know that this morning. Look to the Lord. Find healing. I'm not going to call you. I, I, I had this presented before it where, well, if that's the case, and, and if you didn't know, and maybe you should then get divorced and go back to this relationship. Listen, two wrongs don't make a right. I'm not going to call you to that. I'm not going to call you to complicate sin and to make it more. To seek God's forgiveness, seek his healing, seek his reconciliation. Go and confess your sin to those you've sinned against, perhaps. Ask their forgiveness. And then live in his mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation. The fifth thing, where does it leave us? The fifth thing, if you're considering divorce, the reality is I know that there are some who could be here today who walked in and that was on your mind. You're thinking about it. If you're considering divorce, then I would just beg of you, let us come alongside you and see if we can help you fight through and work towards restoration, work towards walking and health in your marriage. Talk to a pastor. Listen, you need to know that divorce on unbiblical grounds always complicates sin. It does not cure it. It's just going to complicate it. And so what you would say, hey, this will solve it. This will fix it. It's not. It's going to complicate it. It's going to make it worse. So let us come alongside you. Remember what we said earlier, that divorce on the grounds of even sexual immorality is permitted, but it's not required. That's something, a path you need to walk and consider, and we would love to walk that path with you and consider and think about it together. And finally, if you're in a situation in which sin runs rampant in your marriage, a situation in which you find yourself in physical or emotional abuse, a situation in which you just feel like you're trapped and you don't know what to do. This, this passage here doesn't specifically deal with it. I do believe that 1 Corinthians 7 has something to say to those issues, but if that's where you find yourself today and you find yourself in a situation in which you're t enduring abuse that you don't know what to do with, please come talk to one of us. Please seek help. God has given provisions. He made, has made provisions. He's given means such as the church and such as the government law enforcement to help those who are being victimized. He's made provisions for, we, for us to help you, to intervene, to protect you. And we want to protect you. We want to intervene. We want to come alongside you. We want to help you. Don't suffer through that. Come talk to us and let us Step into that. Sin and marital brokenness are real. I mean, throughout Scripture, we see it referred to. It's just something that's in the sin of man. We see Leviticus 21.7, Numbers 30, verse 9, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. They all just make reference to divorce. They all make reference to it. It's something that, unfortunately, is present. God is not unaware of our struggles. God is not ignorant of what we suffer through. The final thing I would just say to you this morning is that I believe this subject is ultimately a reminder of two things. Ultimately, I think as we close out, that this subject is first a reminder of our sinful mess that we make and our need for Christ. 
It's a reminder of our sinfulness and our need for God. We need God. He's not just some add-on. He's not just something that makes you feel better. We need him because we're broken. We're sinful rebels. We're people in need of Christ. But you know what else this reminds us of? Or perhaps it doesn't remind you. Perhaps maybe this should teach you this morning. Is it teaches and reminds of the beauty of a faithful God who makes a covenant commitment and shows steadfast, enduring, faithful, covenant love to an unfaithful bride, the church. I mean, this passage should remind us. When we look at the brokenness in our own marriages, we look at the brokenness in homes around the globe, we look at this text, it reminds us that our God is a faithful God. He's faithful. He loves us sacrificially. He demonstrated that love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us knowing that we'd be unfaithful. He adopts us into his family knowing that we will be unfaithful. And he loves us through it. He's a great and a faithful God. We may be unfaithful. He is faithful as he cannot and he will not deny himself. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful statement out of Hebrews? That we may be unfaithful, but God will always remain faithful. He will always remain faithful. And so when we look at this passage, and we look at the difficulty and the nuances and the challenges, and we think about the pain and the hurt, the trials of marriage, the issue of divorce. May it cause us to lift our gaze and our hearts and our faith to our mighty God. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ. If you're here this morning, you don't know the faithfulness of God in a personal and a real way. You don't know what it's like to live life, the merciful, kind and good and forgiving and cleansing and empowering, grace-filled Savior and Lord. <laughs> Would you turn to Christ? I, I, would, I would implore to you, I would beg you, I would make the appeal to turn from your sins and trust Christ in faith today. Trust Christ. Let's pray.